Well, this is a strange episode. My wife and I decided for my sabbatical that we were going to travel around the country in our truck camper. And one of the things we were looking at was American religion. In particular, for this show, we were interested in stories of people who have left cults, people who have left bad religious contexts and found a little bit of healing. So it's kind of strange that for today's show, Stacy and I found ourselves at a former hippie commune that someone once called a benign cult. In fact, there was a moment when we were visiting this place. It's called The Farm in Tennessee, a famous old-school hippie commune that is the subject of many documentaries and, and books. But when we were there, one of the young women who was visiting along with us was told by a nice older lady, you know, we used to be a cult. And that was a strange moment. Because for whatever it turns out you think of the farm, or whatever we end up thinking about the farm, they did something that almost no other group has successfully been able to do. Now, in the history of the sociology of religion, it's true that people have moved from sect to denomination, and groups that used to be called cults now act more like mainstream denominations. But I'm talking about a way in which an unhealthy group can get healthy. That's what we're looking at today. We're looking at decultification, what a former hippie commune can teach us about changing for the better. Now, you're going to need to not be put off too quickly. You've got to keep a slightly open mind here, not because we're going to try to trick you into thinking that you should join this or that group or that you should believe like we believe. No, no, no. But what we want to look at is this really strange thing that happened where we went to a place where we thought we might find a cult and we found something becoming relatively healthy. We can't vouch for everything. We didn't spend enough time there. But we also reflected on ways in which, believe it or not, this group, the farm, has a lot to teach the rest of us as we look at the health of our own religious communities and perhaps the ways that we can sometimes make those communities healthier than they were before. That's what we're looking at. And we're also looking at a whole bunch of other real deep, background questions for me. For instance, when I was born, my parents had just, they had just moved out of an ashram in Colorado into a house. The farm was very similar to my, my own family's community life right when I was born. One of the questions I asked at this trip that we took to the farm was also really about my own parents. What happens when you get a bit disillusioned by idealism? What happens when you have all these great goals about changing the world and at some point you kind of have to back off? So it's not just a story today about a commune that became less culty. It's also a story of a, of a commune that became an intentional community. They had to change their policies in ways that some at least thought might have not been faithful to the original founding. It's an incredibly interesting story. We're not going to redo the very interesting documentaries about this place. You'll have to go find those. And you can find some of these on our show notes at protectyournoggin.org. But what we're going to do is bring you 10 lessons that Stacy and I learned. And we think it's not only going to be a lot of fun, but you might learn something that's really helpful. Let's go. Stand by to dive. Diving stations. Dive. 
Dive. Welcome, friends, to the Protect Your Noggin podcast. We offer lessons in outfoxing religious wolves. And sometimes we will address emotionally difficult subjects. So make sure you pay careful attention to our descriptions of each of the episodes. And then also have some resources handy, such as the Crisis Text Line. That's one of our favorites, which is 741-741. That's 741-741. Now, just take a deep breath because we're not afraid to go deep. But don't worry, because we'll also have some fun along the way. Our plan is to help us all resurface with insights and tools to help heal ourselves and our communities. So come along, because we got this. All right, Stacy. What did you think about this place? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, let me just back up here for a minute because when we had decided that we were going to go to the Nashville area, and of course we were told we you knew about the farm, but then we were also kind of reminded by a Uber driver to visit it, and then that was one of the main reasons we were going to go. We're there Friday. We're going to leave soon. And we're like, wait a minute. We never checked out the farm. Maybe we should check out the farm. We were in Nashville. Right. Sitting, sitting at a at a bar waiting for We were our... waiting for my Apple computer to get fixed yeah. since I had a virus or something. It was yeah. So we were just, we almost, we almost forgot to go check it out. But then you happened to look on the website. And I didn't really want to do it. I knew it was kind of like work. You know, I've got to do this for the research. Right. It did become, in many ways, one of the most powerful parts of our experience just because of the many people we met, the various people we met, and its historical importance for the things that I'm interested in studying about recent American religious history. Right. But I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, I guess we're going to do this. And I just had, I had <laughs> some very mixed emotions, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm like, I, you know, I, I'm, I must be honest, I was a little afraid, you know, yep. I'm like, what are we going to be walking into? I, I text the kids. Are we going too deep? <laughs> yeah. And I text the kids and I'm like, hey guys, we're going to be going to a hip, what, what used to be a hippie commune. Uh, here's the address that we're going to be going mm-hmm. to. This is the, you know, I'm going to send you a picture of the last known, you know, place that we drive off of a main road and the GPS coordinates. Cause I, you know, and I didn't even know, would we have any sort of cell service there? You know, would we, I just didn't know if we'd be cut off you know, from all of our contacts or whatever. So anyway, I must say that, you know, just that, yeah, I was, it was a little, I was a little heightened, you know, just kind of wondering what am I going to be walking into? But it turned out that they were very kind. It didn't feel weird once we started, you know, right. being a part of the, you know, the... And I'll go one farther. Group. I'll go one farther. No, nobody, not us, not, well, maybe some people thought <laughs> they were susceptible <laughs> to such things. Nobody would have thought that we were legitimately cuddling at night after we had left actually asking the question, is this a viable thing to go move to? Mm -hmm. And part of it is because even though it's no longer a commune in the old sense, there there are actually some advantages to the changes that they've made. And if you can build a house there, Mm -hmm. ultimately there's there's a lot to to look into before you get to that stage. You have to be accepted and so forth. But it, it doesn't really cost you anything. And so in the quest for understanding how we might live without being subservient to some other system. Mm -hmm. 
and be able to be as ethical as we can in what we well, and- teach and write that you know that's that was a really attractive thing and the and we kind of fell in love with a lot of the people. They were really groovy. Right. Well, well, and, and part of it is is that we've even talked about on our own land that we have in San Diego wanting to Doing something wanting like to it. build some sort of, you know, uh, alternative house type thing. By and- the way, friends, if you're really good at, you know, planning and if you if you've got maybe construction or contracting background and you want to do something like that we're not against it mm-hmm. uh, our problem is you know we need a little capital to, to widen <laughs> some roads and things before you get uh, yeah, a whole commune going permits to me it was like well, and they already did it that's part of right. it they had already gone through the process that we're in the midst of trying to figure out how to be non-conventional in our building so Correct. for instance we got really interested in earth homes Mm -hmm. from Hesperia um, and these earth homes by a guy who was influenced by a, by a Sufi Rumi had, had helped to develop this super Adobe technology where you can build a really cool and basically indestructible Adobe house in a place that really needs that. And And yet the the County of, of, of San Diego wouldn't let us. And it's also, you know, it is the, it keeps the temperature at a pretty even level, whether it's hot or cold. Yeah. You don't even need air air conditioning. You Probably don't need so here's heating, yeah. So what we're know, saying so is we'd love to do this in San Diego, but th- there's all there's these too many regulations. Yeah. I don't know that it would ever become a, a reality. But in the farm, you can build whatever. I mean, I'm sure that there's certain things they want to make sure. Obviously, that your your roof's not going to collapse in on you. But on the you know, but you, it's open to whatever. There were actually different kinds of home cob home and adobe they even structures. Had some of the earth type home at like, this place. P- parts of it, yeah. So wait a minute. That's the whole thing <laughs> we've been trying to do. There were a group of people. That went through a lot of those hoops decades ago. Yeah. And so one of the advantages to finding a community that already exists, there are downsides, but there's places where there are communities that exist that maybe need younger leadership and, and new blood to come in to keep the thing moving along. And in that case, what their advantage is or what they have is that they've already established all of these things. Yeah, you're not you're not going to have well, the county come bother you. Yep. Point is, it was surprisingly it, attractive. Right. That you kind of you know you have you have some ideas of things you want to do, and I think you can make it possible there. And we have not applied for membership at the farm. We've been spending our time <laughs> no. in Miami and other places, but it and definitely have, was and interesting. And we don't have any you know any immediate plans to do no, so. No. So, Jeff, will you please tell our dear listeners like a little bit more about what the farm is? What happened was there was a dude named Stephen Gaskin, and he was kind of influenced through, you know, being a hippie Mm -hmm. and having experiences by the teachings of Jesus, the community of the early church, Mahayana Buddhism, and maybe a few other, you know, spiritual traditions. But basically, he was a a spiritual teacher, but also somebody who had had kind of brought with him a, a bunch of other seekers, you know, spiritual seekers. And they found their way to San Francisco, the Haight-Ashbury scene of the 60s. Well, you know, you really couldn't easily get a whole group of people to live inexpensively. And the way he wanted to live <laughs> in California was cheaper then, but, you know, but still. And he was able to then eventually take this group as they were touring around. And they ended up in uh, Lewis County, Tennessee. It's near the town of Summertown. And there are lots of people that live in Summertown. Basically, what he did is that he got this caravan of 60 buses and vans and trucks, and they all just head out on the road. And they tried to find places to kind of establish themselves. Some states were a lot less accommodating. There were places that were just downright hostile to the idea. One of the interesting things about this place 
is even though at the time it's kind of in the middle of nowhere and they were really off-grid, it's still relatively close to Nashville, closer than anything was when we lived in, in Barberville, Kentucky, for instance. So, it, you know, it has, it, it has this kind of element to it. And it basically was where they were able to get 750 acres originally for $100 an acre. Pretty good. And so they're still benefiting from that reality. And they kind of established a... They established a commune, a community, that was registered, I think, as a monastery. They took vows of poverty in that nobody that came there owned their own stuff. Everything was communal. It was anarchist in that sense. And one they, were, of the, they were feeding everybody with soybeans, right? Well, yeah, that's the other thing. So part of what they cared about was nonviolence, and so they didn't want to use animal products. They didn't want to use like pharmaceuticals that weren't natural. They were against tobacco and alcohol, and they were also against abortion, which will come in to be an interesting thing in a moment. And so one of the things involving that, they were, you know, very natural folks, but the one thing at the time was that a lot of this was, was definitely in that hippie zone. So they kind of thought about marijuana being a, like a sacrament mm-hmm. <laughs> part, part of what they were doing. But you know, it's it, it it's it's one of those classic hippie groups that is in this case a little bit more, I would say, conservative, in that it wasn't a free love place. So they valued marriage. Yeah, you know, there were there are a lot of still a lot of the kind of classic early church teachings that were involved, and then you kind of lay on a little bit more new age spirituality, but more importantly, like a Buddhist spirituality on top of that. As I'll get to in a moment, m- most of that is very not just relaxed, but you might not see some of those things. So people, they, they got little tents put together when they got to Tennessee, and they developed essentially this, this little monastery. And again, this is, all, this is all under the leadership of Stephen Gaskin. And what's really interesting is even though he is the, the founder, really, of this whole organization, this movement, this commune, it's his wife that most people know. In fact, the place we're staying right now mm-hmm. knew about them, I think, primarily because of Ina May Gaskin. And what From is her, midwi- her midwifery training, right? That yeah. She, she wrote a book on it and sort of pioneered, at least in America, you know, some of the, the ideas that a lot of people in today even will study what she what she's written. Yeah. What is it to be a midwife? The, the natural birth, different different spiritual themes about giving birth. Mm-hmm. And so they valued children. They would often help young single moms deliver their babies. And, and often they would stick around. So you'd have some of these kids that would be a part of it. But in any case, one of the, one of the things that then happened was they started to get really weighed down by a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the energy and the resources it took to allow people in that didn't bring anything to the table. In other words, a lot of the people started this thing, admittedly, the folks that we mentioned, uh, the folks we talked to, would say that they came from relatively affluent white backgrounds. And so they came with maybe a little money, maybe a little bit of a, an they, asset here or they there. Kind they kind of all could, piled together all of their savings and assets right. or whatever. That's and how then... they could buy this. But then they wanted to live like the early church in a way, like in the book of Acts. And as they're owning things together, they're also bringing in people that might have been mentally ill, people that didn't have a lot of resources or might have really been in 
um, in a in a rough spot in life. So now they're yeah. taking from the system, but and don't really. Because of the midwifery thing, so they, there was a lot of single moms, or you know, right. that that they were helping to birth the babies, and and so that give them a place to go, right? And then also where a big problem came in was uh, healthcare in general. There was a few people on the farm that had some major healthcare need or health needs that they couldn't serve at the farm. So whenever they would have to go to emergency rooms or hospitals, Mm -hmm. you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars later in medical bills that they were trying to help with. And it just became... you know, unsustainable. They had a few or hundred people that right. They had a few people that started it, and then you had, I think, up to fifteen hundred people, but certainly over a thousand people, and a, a lot of them were again unable to contribute. And also, one of the things is, I, I from what I can tell about Gaskin, he he was kind of a kind of a nice guy, but by being the guru, by being the guy in charge, sometimes if he was you know, if he had a blind spot or if he was not really understanding something, then that was going to affect the whole community. So, for instance, if he didn't realize that people needed more nutrition mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that the farm wasn't able to produce enough to give these kids what they needed, for instance, in terms of their diet, he was so idealistic that it was hard for him to really see when somebody was, was crying it, when out. It, when the system wasn't... And wasn't he was also him. into this positive kind of spirituality where he thought it was bad to be a grumbler or discontent. So I don't get the sense that he was a total narcissist that was... He might have been like a spiritual narcissist. Some people think that even the Buddha might have been a spiritual narcissist, a, a benevolent narcissist, if this means anything. But... The, the the thing with Gaskin, though, I think, is he just believed so much in the power of, you know, positive thinking, for instance, that he didn't want people to raise concerns that ultimately were concerns that should have been raised and ultimately led to basically this thing having to almost shut down mm-hmm. because they couldn't afford to keep it going. Right. Mm-hmm. So at some point, it didn't matter what you thought. A lot of people might have wanted to keep it according to its old values and so forth. But it was in the early 80s and, and really came to a head in 1983 that essentially that the farm got together, the people that were residential members of this community, they had this thing called the Great Changeover. And this changeover was the decollectivizing of the thing. So no longer was it a, a commune in that original sense. It became an intentional community that that had a lot of collaborative work, but ultimately people needed to be able to get a job or have some kind of income. And the problem was not everybody had vehicles or, or means, and certainly it would be difficult to get all the way to, say, Nashville. Right. It was so, over an hour, I think, or about an hour away. I think some people said that if they were able to have learned to do construction, that worked out all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those days, there weren't a lot of, uh, there weren't as many non Anglo immigrants, and so and there were and there were some folks that at that time already had kind of started their own like sort of side businesses, Mm -hmm. Um, and and so that became the way though of the future was you have to figure out how you're going to make your your how you're going to have income, and so there were there were limited jobs on the farm. And there were a few folks that were making their living that way. They had the, they but, invented like a soy ice cream. They had you know the, the house. midwives. You know, so those things kind of kept going, and some people got jobs there. But it made it so that the the whole thing started to dwindle. And so right. today, so you've that was got, kind of a lot of people left the farm at that time because right. they couldn't 
they couldn't afford or didn't have a, a way to stay there because they didn't have they didn't have an income opportunity. Now, again, it's important to realize that that one of the things that was involved with the changeover was just the structural thing. It was no longer a commune, mm. but it was also a time when Gaskin no longer got to be the cult leader. Right. Call he it a benevolent a regular 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 member. Right. And and part of that really leads him to kind of isolate himself a little bit more. He was at the end of the farm, so he didn't have to engage with people all the time. And I'm sure he felt a little bit sad that he didn't get to be... Well, it's kind of hard. I mean, how do you even go from being the leader and in charge of everything to then just, you know, becoming an average, just everyday member? And that I would think even some people would be tempted still to even sort of see him leader-ish, you know? So you kind of do have to step aside if that's no longer going to be your role. We don't know enough about that part of it. I don't know. And uh, and yet I think that's, you know, that's the best sense we get from just the talking with the folks that have been around for a while. But the the other thing, though, is that I think he must have been heartbroken that the idealism... That would be tough. The dream... dream Didn't fully work. Couldn't... Yeah. the dream couldn't be the reality. No, it kind of turned out to be more like The Walking Dead. I don't mean there were zombies, but I mean in The Walking Dead, you'll see, you know, a community. Really, the show The Walking Dead is about a community of people that are trying to to survive the apocalypse in a community. But sometimes they can't accept people that are too dangerous or maybe you're going to hold them back. And it's a, it's a hard thing. That's one of the things we're going to look at. Anyway, so today they've they've kind of re re-emerged in a kind of interesting way, especially with people that come that are more interested now in the eco-village training, which is nearby, solar energy, biofuels. Soy is not as popular as it used to be in the 60s and 70s. So they're, you know, looking at other other types of plant-based food and so forth. Not so much a farm anymore. There are people that farm. They farm on it. Yeah, but it's not like the farm is the central thing. And it's not like a commune where for you to live for free on this spot, you would have to put in kind of slave hours. And I don't mean to say that disparagingly, but there are some communes where, you know. You have to work. you got to yeah, work you, to be there. Some, sure. Yeah, you offer a certain amount of your services to the community in general as part of your requirements, and they don't have that. So why would you say that this is an important part of our explorations? Well, again, because first, is it possible for a group to just change altogether? Could you just stand up in front of the Southern Baptists or the Roman Catholics and make big changes? And sometimes they might, you know, the Southern Baptists are trying to figure out how to change the way they've dealt with with sexual abuse within their churches. The Roman Catholics are asking is it possible that we could have married priests? These would be really big changes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it seems impossible. Mm-hmm. So it's partly the decultification that I'm interested in. I don't know too many other groups that have done it. It's really hard. I mean, you come in, you have a certain identity, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got to, you're going to completely change that up. A lot of people can't even do that, yeah, like even in their own lives. Like, like the you Reformation. Know, or even like what, second career people or whatever. It's really hard to kind of do an about face and, and completely change up what you are individually. I couldn't imagine a whole community getting on board with this or figuring out how to transition. That's I would say most of the time people, they just go extinct. You know, like the Jonestown thing, well, they killed themselves, or the the Shakers, they didn't believe in sex, and so they didn't have any more babies. So you get these groups that just kind of dwindle, and then they go away. Then you've got others that kind of hang around for a while, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they are able to just get enough new members 
that don't remember failed prophecies of the past to be comfortable with the with whatever it is. Or every once in a while you find a group that changes and maybe matures a little bit. I believe, for instance, the Worldwide Church of God and this guy Herbert W. Armstrong was a kind of odd cult. And a couple generations in, some of the folks said, hey, you know what? We're just going to we're just going to kind of just go back to being middle of the road evangelicals, you know? I mean, they, they kind of left that kind of sect status and moved into being more of a, of a part of American Christianity, say. But with the exception of a couple of those groups, I don't, I don't really know another group that is a paradigm case for making these big changes. Now, the one thing about the farm is it's not a den- denomination, and so... It, it's right. They were, they were the only ones they had to answer to rather than having yeah. to go through some bigger system. And it wasn't nationwide and so forth. So, right. so you know, we met, we met people and they have their own spiritual ideas. But at the same time, as a whole, they seemed, they got a lot healthier. Imagine church lady, Sunday school teacher, church mom, who also wears tie-dye. That's, that's who we met. <laughs> they were really great. And, and, and if you are a church lady, you could have come to a potluck and, and largely felt pretty comfortable with it right. until they started doing the Sufi dance and then you'd be <laughs> confused, right? But anyway, we'll get to that. It's the paradigmatic case study of a group that, quote, used to be a cult, mm-hmm. right? And also, the second part is it's paradigmatic in that it's asking the question about whether or not it's possible for these ideals to work in practice. A lot of times, you know, young people get together and they have all these groovy ideas about how to live in the ideal utopian way. Mm-hmm. It didn't work for them. And one of the questions I had was, did it not work for them because of something they did wrong? Or is it just not possible to do it perfectly? Right. We'll discuss a little bit of that after the break. But for this quick break, I just wanted to play for you Sounds from the Past. This is the Tennessee Farm Band, a, a band that would that was based out of the farm and they would tour around and share their message of love and togetherness and nonviolence. We'll be right back after a little of this. The Tennessee Farm Band. across the U.S., we have found a website that we absolutely love. It's called Harvest Hosts. Could you imagine camping overnight in a vineyard, distillery, brewery, or a golf course all to yourself? We've been doing it, and it is absolutely magical. If you go to our website, protectyournoggin.org, you'll find a link where you can sign up and get 15% discount on the annual fee. We think it'll put a smile on your face, and you can help support the podcast at the same time. All you need is an RV or camper with a toilet and cooking facilities, and you can stay all around the country for free. We hope you dig it as much as we do. Check it out. 
right. So what do we learn, Stacey? Let's just get right to the lessons. Yeah. So We've the got 10 lessons. The first lesson that we came up with was the pure kingdom of God on earth definitely kind of seems impossible. I hated that. Yeah. Of all the things, I was more hopeful that they were just authoritarian and, and, and cruel to each other. And that wasn't the problem. No. Yeah. It just, it just wasn't sustainable. And that was, yeah, that's, that's heartbreaking in a way. Cause you wish that like there, how could we love and take care of everybody, feed everybody, you know, all be together in a group working in community, being together and, and everybody's needs are met. Right? Now we're not saying that this kingdom that's at hand isn't at hand. That is this kind of invisible thing. Mm-hmm. But making it an actuality is really, really hard. And I'm, I'm thinking almost impossible if you're focusing on specifically what we do with the world's losers. So as a small community, you could get a bunch of real scrappy farmers and, and craftspeople together and maybe they could make a run of things. What was hard was this idea that, say, Jesus talks about that the least and the last and the lost should be welcomed in. It's the prisoners and the refugees and the children and the orphans. The early church was all about taking in widows and orphans, and that's what these cats were trying to do, and that was very difficult financially. Yes, and then they found that, you know, if certain folks could in such a small community could be very disruptive you know if if they have mental health issues sometimes yep. or depending on what it is or just i think crazy street people are, are one of the reasons that the hippie movement which i call myself a neo hippie and by this i mean i think some of the ideals that they had are really really cool and people make fun of them but as they say what's so funny about peace love and understanding <laughs> if if the triad you know you've got faith hope and love as a as a christian set of virtues if you've got goodness truth and beauty the transcendent the transcendentals for plato if peace love and understanding are the the three bits for the hippie then i'm that i'm a neo hippie i i believe mm-hmm. in this but but one of the problems whether it's 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 charlie manson mm-hmm. or just somebody who comes up off the street and wants to be a part of something and have a community, I realized even as I was there that I had come in kind of down on them for doing something I haven't come close to. In other words, I don't live in a community. Mm. I don't live giving all of my goods over to other people. And yet I was hoping that they would do that for me. They're, they're kind of known as the technicolor Amish. I wouldn't want to be Amish, but as we drive by, People have these warm feelings like, oh, isn't that cute? Wouldn't it be nice to be Amish? Or isn't that cute? Wouldn't it be nice to be a hippie that didn't well, have any cares people, in the world? I think people are, are they're kind of after a simpler life, you know, that sometimes we get so busy that we wonder, is it possible to slow down a little bit? And is it possible to focus just a little bit more on growing your own food and, you know, rather than the hustle and bustle? Mm-hmm. So you want to go there and you want to hang out. But here's the thing. We've experienced this ourselves, baby, in the work that we've already done. There are some people that require a lot of your battery. In this work, people that have been harmed by churches, but also people that have a a little bit of a mental illness Mm -hmm. that makes them really attracted Mm -hmm. to hanging out. Well, and and because they want community and they don't feel like they fit in in sometimes their communities that they're in or society in general. And so they want to find a group of people that will accept them unconditionally. Now, I've got like a little like burlap sack of mental illnesses that I store with me. I, you know, not diagnosed, (laughs) but, you know, high anxiety, ADHD, you know, I get it, right? Um, 
I'm not talking about this. I think the listener will understand that there are people that just require a lot of our attention and sometimes we don't have the energy for them. And we need to figure out to what extent am I allowed not to let them become energy vampires. Right. We love everybody, but we've got to discern when somebody is just draining us and we can't even help our own families, our own children. And so I even saw as we were there visiting that they needed to not include some people. Mm-hmm. You know, some people that might be at the farmer's market asking about, you know, what it's like to live on the community grounds. Maybe they shouldn't be let in. Mm-hmm. And that made me really sad. Right. They can't let in extremely old people that haven't been there. Largely because they already have such a huge growing um, uh, aging population that right. they are they're wondering how they're all going to be cared for and to bring in more just adds to the burden until they have a solution and know that they can properly take care of everybody. You and I, baby, at age 45, were just a little bit above the sweet spot. I bet they would have loved it if we were 37 (laughs) and wealthy. But there was also a problem if you were young. There were young women that were visiting. It was interesting. We said on, I think, the last show how many times we've met young women, single women, in van life culture Mm -hmm. trying to escape the hierarchical system or the patriarchy or whatever they would say it is. And here, there were a lot of young women. There were no young single men that were visiting. It was just young right. women that were visiting. Uh, well, they had mentioned, too, that at the with the time when they had, they had a lot of young single women, that they didn't want men to come. What was the word that they used? Hunting. Hunting, yes. They didn't yeah. want men to come I kind of appreciated that, for right. the women, you yeah. know. Now, the financial part, though, was especially difficult for the young women. Because they want, you have to be financially independent. You have to be able to have some sort of business that is not, or or income at least, that doesn't revolve around the farm. So it would be outside. So whether, you know, the internet now has made it a lot, you know, a lot easier for some folks that know that they can make a living online. But there's not a lot in the surrounding community and you're kind of too far from Nashville. So it's really tough to figure out how are you going to, you know, take care of yourself and and pay for your food and your utilities. And your young adult barista with no savings. Sorry, you might not be able to find yourself there. Or if you're old with a lot of debt that, you know, you need and you need to be able to, again, have your own income. So if you look at what Jesus said about the kingdom and you compare it to that. There's this weird paradox, and the paradox is that it's one of the closest things I've ever seen to an experiment in the book of Acts, and it's also totally renounced some of those principles, right? So you 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 have to have something that you're bringing to the table for it to work, and that was really hard. I don't think anybody wanted that to be the case, but it did. And this is interesting about religion in general. It's something that I call the identity relevance paradox, and I'm kind of adapting it from a guy named Jürgen Moltmann who talked about the identity engagement paradox. But here's what I mean, for instance, in terms of, let's say, American Christianity, just to give you an example. Uh, If you are really, really good at having the perfectly pure teachings as a Baptist or a Methodist or a Lutheran, and you think, therefore, that you have fully encapsulated the, the doctrines of Jesus, the true church on earth, the way that you're going to maintain that is by circling the wagons and and being relatively isolated. So to maintain a high level of identity as a religious group, you need to have uniformity. You need to lock things in pretty tight. You're all having one publishing house. 
your own schools, your own colleges, that sort of thing. Maybe if you're a Dutch Reformed person, you're speaking Dutch mm-hmm. <laughs> in your colleges and seminaries. Whatever it takes to keep things tight and uniform. But the problem is that, the, that if you have absolutely perfect identity in that regard, you will lose your identity. Because the identity of the early Christian movement, the early Jesus movement, was to bring people in that weren't like you. Mm. So if you're perfectly good at identity, you lose your identity because you're not reaching out to the world outside of you. On the other hand, if you're perfectly good at being relevant, that is, you're always engaged in what other people are doing in the community, then all you really are is another social club like the Key Club or, or, you know, the young young business people getting together and, and planting, you know, indigenous habitat or whatever. It's, it's a nice thing, but it doesn't give you a prophetic voice in that same way. In other words... The point is, if you care so much about your identity, you might lose your relevance because right. it might not grow alongside of culture or society outside of your identity. Yeah. But if you're totally... And, you know, care about relevance, you're going to lose your identity because you're right. you're going to allow too much in. So right. So that's so right. the if I go to if I go to the Amish and they're not wearing the Amish clothes, I'm not that in- interested. If if I go to a Pentecostal church and they're not having some groovy music, if I'm not dancing around in the aisles. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Right. But they might change the music to get me in. You see, right. Well, now I'm going to their church, but, but what now, am I going to? <laughs> just yeah. like you know, middle of the road evangelical and is it music church. that you could have just found anywhere. <laughs> as far as the the farm goes, their identity relevance paradox then would be that as they were able to incorporate a lot of breadth of ideas, different religious values, people with different spiritual paths, and different understandings now of whether you can eat meat or whether you can drink booze, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things I noticed was a little bit of a sense of loss, even though I had never been there in the old days. I like having booze on occasion. I was kind of sad that they they had the booze. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to smoke a cigar there. They weren't into tobacco. In a way that, say, I would like my... I would like my martial artist to be a Shaolin monk, you know? (laughs) Like, I kind of wanted that in a way. And what's hard is that I think ultimately the community had a whole bunch of spiritual rules, and they pulled back on that. So I don't, you know, I'm sure they still value children and life, but I don't think they're against all artificial birth control anymore. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's a vegan anymore. Some people are having... In fact, I think there's a brewery on the farm. Somebody's starting mm-hmm. a, a brewery. And so, you know, in the old days, alcohol's, didn't, yeah, didn't you know, forbidden. Exist. So anyway. I think so, that brings us, though, to number two. Yeah, that, lesson two. Yeah, that there's there's something comfortable about having multiple, and we'll call it spiritual boroughs. Yeah. You know, so you've got like a city. Like, think about New York City. This is by no means as large as New York City. But it wasn't one unified thing, which was really kind of nice. Now, you were walking down the street at one point, Mm -hmm. and you told some young member of the community what you did. It was like a 25-year-old guy. (laughs) And what did he say? He's like, oh, I just, because me being a yoga instructor, he said, oh, I I can't do that. I'm not into the Hindu thing. And I said, oh, that's kind of interesting, because what I I really enjoy doing is, is teaching yin. And that's Chinese. So, and he's like, oh, well, then you should yeah. come and teach a yin <laughs> class. I'll go to that, you know. So, yeah. But it, it's interesting because they do have yoga classes on, on the farm. Uh, so that, that's a thing that could exist. But this guy, obviously, he was, he was discerning in that he didn't, you know, he didn't want to get into the whole Hindu, Hindu thing. But what 
what was nice about the farm was that you weren't judged for having different beliefs from somebody else. So he didn't judge the Hindu people for going to their yoga or just say we shouldn't have that kind of, you know, we shouldn't have that kind of yoga here on the farm. He just didn't go to it, you know? It was really, really interesting. Now, again, people are, I'm sure people misunderstand what we're up to. There is a lot to learn. And one of the things to learn is I wish more Christian kids, for instance, would respond that way. Right, it's all or nothing. We keep threatening it, but, but you know, uh, there are some really bad players in the history of American experience with yoga, from from the Rajneeshis to the Bikram creeper. So there's a lot of ways that this can go wrong. Mm-hmm. But what I really liked was that this young man had practiced probably his whole life saying what he was going to participate in and not. Right. So here's here's Stacy, this person <laughs> from a Christian background who teaches yoga and we're on this, you know, quote unquote cult territory <laughs> and the kids are a little bit too creeped out by Stacy's weird eastern <laughs> vibes, right? Which made us so much more comfortable with the whole scene. Right. Because we realized that that was that that wasn't something he apologized for. And and the other reason why I think that that this is a, this is an important thing is when kids if they think that they have to accept everything from a religious group or, or say from your church, and then all of a sudden they find out that they don't agree with this one thing, they almost might think they have to throw the whole thing out mm-hmm. and then, then see what's on the other side. But yeah. really, just because certain things happen within a religious community doesn't mean every aspect of it is healthy. Yeah. But it also doesn't mean that just because there is an unhealthy aspect that every... <laughs> The rest of it is unhealthy because there's one piece that is, you know. So yeah. by labeling it one way or the other and not having that discernment, it, it you can lose out on a lot of things or kind of like, you know, you throw out the baby with the bathwater, as yeah. the saying would say. It was a small community, but it actually felt less claustrophobic than... There's a lot of options. Yeah, and it, but it felt less claustrophobic than the city of Crestone. So the the gal that we had met in Crestone... Colorado. In, in Colorado... Uh, it's kind of a hippie-ish town, and and she said that that she had been raised there, lived there all her life, and that they had the town had five different religions, and all of them were judging her for different reasons. Right, and so, and so she looked at if she ordered a hamburger, then the ones that were vegan or vegetarian were upset with her you know if she didn't like Trump, then the then the cowboy was upset with her if she wasn't meditating or if she, you know, all these things, everybody was looking to be pure mm-hmm. and everybody was judgy. That's not what we noticed at, at the farm. Right. And I'm, and I, I guess we're saying that some of these things are really important for all of us to take back with us. So they're not accepting for themselves all of the different things that might be going on, but they weren't judging the other people for yeah. what they chose yeah. to practice. See, that's different from saying, oh, we, we have no discernment. No, it was more discernment, more openness. That's mm-hmm. possible. And I, I'd really not thought of it that way. The other thing is that there were just multiple lifestyles on the farm. Right. There you was know? the whole eco-village. So all That was a fun of, place. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to see all of their research and and experiments with different types of, like, even just... Sanitizing the sewage with, with plants. Right. Reintroducing the gray water into, you know, in a healthy way back into the, the ground and mm-hmm. feeding Composting your toilets and all of this. And so. all sorts of different building types, you know, and housing, alternative housing structures. One of the lessons for people that are, that are religious is to say, if you want to keep the kids around, maybe let them find the part of your tradition that's 
interesting, right? Like maybe your kids don't believe in young earth creationism, but they really want to go put wells in in, in Ghana, you know? <laughs> One thing that churches do is, as you were saying, they make it so restrictive. You have to buy this whole thing, hook, line, and sinker, or else you're ostracized. That just makes it very difficult. It makes it very cramped. But if you can have a center of gravity and then invite people to things that they might really enjoy. Interestingly also, you know, at churches, don't guilt people into going to everything. I think you're going to run them off, you Mm -hmm. know? One other thing I want to mention with the whole uh, eco-village area, they showed us these older vehicles that... They were even brought to the Chicago World Fair, and it was already uh, these alternative fuels and things and and running these cars that because they were allowed to experiment Mm -hmm. and because there was these people that just had some materials and had to make things work, Mm -hmm. they were able to be creative with just sort of different, you know, different fuel sources and different ways of... A living laboratory. Yeah. And, of environmental and, consciousness and other things. So it's yeah. kind of fun that you can experiment or be open enough to new ideas and ways of, of doing things that you you can learn things that maybe would never have come to be. And I think there is a spirituality to the type of lifestyle you have, to the money and how you spend money and how you get your food, the kind of food you have, and also the kind of house you have. Is it recycled materials? Is it is it playing smart with the environmental impact that you have when you're building something. And it was great because at the Eco Village, they had multiple different structures that were just experiments. They were playing with it. Mm -hmm. And there's something really, for me at least, psychologically uplifting about just being in that much of a creative space. I, I felt, I think the reason I loved my visit so much is I never had felt so electric because of my personality that loves possibility. Like I could live in mm-hmm. a Cobb house or a super Adobe house or a yurt. I could, right. I, I could do anything. And that then allows me to ask the bigger question, what do I want to do? You mm-hmm. know, or what's the best to do and that sort of thing. Anyway, so different home styles. There was a drum circle. There are the young people doing the drum circle. Then there's some of the older folks that are doing the roomy style dancing. And it was, it, it was a, it was a fun way to say that, you could pick one or the other. And it was almost like, and I I kind of would love, you know, Irvine will never do this, but I would love to move to almost any town where, get this, the conversation is about religion and spirituality and ethics and building materials and off-grid living. That's all the stuff I care about. Mm -hmm. But in a way that just meant that that's what people were all interested in. Not that I had to figure out how I was going to fit into their version of it. Right. And they were happy to show you their yeah. way of doing things. Even a lot of them had their own individual farms and yeah. and different farming techniques or things. And it was, so it was fun for them to, they wanted to, it was almost like an art. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they wanted to show you the art that they have created. Their lives were art. Their yes. lives were their poetry. Okay, lesson number three. It was really obvious that porous boundaries and good outside relationships make for a healthy, healthier spiritual culture. Yeah, so part of why they were... I think as healthy as they were is that unlike other groups that were completely closed off in the sixties mm-hmm. and you know, not just the gene pool, the literal gene pool, but the intellectual gene pool wasn't so closed off that it, it became sick mm-hmm. in that same way. And they had a gate, but they kept it open and allowed, I mean, the local law enforcement was allowed in the local community members in general were allowed in they'd come in for farmers markets mm-hmm. and then even some of the community members of the farm would go and help 
the local neighbors with building some of their houses or fixing, you know, things or fixing their houses and that kind of stuff because they knew about construction. So they were able to garner a lot of goodwill with the local community members. And think about it, if you can keep, if you know that the community is going to come in, anybody that was sort of tempted to get weird on them mm-hmm. uh, inside the farm, it's not going to go well because then it's, the outsiders are going to start raising questions, right? So that that really helps to sort of make sure that they are keeping everything on the up and up and mm-hmm. not kind of folding in on themselves in weird ways or unhealthy ways. I really like this concept, though, of porous boundaries, the idea that you, you need boundaries. So the farm has a gate. They said that was one of the most important things is to mm-hmm. have that gate so you don't get the yahoos, you know, racing through or... or Right. You know, you, you get to protect your space. At the same time, the porous boundary allows you to not be in that classic cult situation of this helpless attachment. You can't unplug. I know that, for instance, the fundamentalist Mormons, the fundamentalist LDS, there's a higher rate of suicide amongst male ex-FLDS kids because they're unable to connect to society they hmm. they have been so isolated that, that when right. they finally leave that makes sense. they're just lost a scientist friend of mine ann gauger commented on an article i'd posted to our website a while back how to leave a cult right and she said the problem is for many people in real bona fide cults it's Im- literally impossible for them to leave they don't have any clothes on their back and i recognize that there's a spectrum of cults and i, I think we'll maybe even address it more fully her, her question but here that's precisely what makes this former cult, to use the language mm-hmm. of one of the members there, what makes it so much healthier is that they didn't keep you in. They actually said, you're going you're gonna to feel free to go if you can't make it here, you right. know, and, and they let people come back. So there were some people that had gone away for several years and then were there. There were people, when I think about porous boundaries, there were people that came to one or more classes that were on the farm. It could be class on how to do permaculture so you could come into the space Mm -hmm. and you can be a part of it that way they also allow people to not be members of the community in the official way but live rent from well rent from somebody or live in the nearby town of the summer town and then come and go and just be close to the conversation so they were they were warm and welcoming to people without right. forcing them to become... You could attend the drum circle even right. if you weren't a part of the community. Great example. One thing, by the way, if you want to learn about all of this, uh, one of the guys we met was Douglas Stevenson. And Doug was kind of our host and mm-hmm. really gave us a lot of good information. He also is the author of a couple books that we will link to, How to Change the World, the Evolution of the Farm Community, and also The Farm Then and Now, a model for sustainable living. And so those two books are available, of course, on Amazon, but we'll link to them. And that can give you a little bit of an insider's understanding because Douglas, I called him an OG hippie, (laughs) and he didn't know, he's so OG that he didn't know (laughs) what that meant. He doesn't listen to, you know, the Dr. Dre (laughs) stuff, but he, uh, but he, but he was, he was the old, he was the old school, that first generation and it is interesting that a lot of the people in their discussions would spend a lot of time kind of identifying themselves in terms of when they came, how much legitimacy they might have or not have in terms of their connection to the original community. And that is just as a side issue, also part of that first point about 
the kingdom of God being very difficult or impossible. Here is this non-hierarchical community that doesn't believe in power and money and Molech. They are an entire community of people trying not to live by Molech's values. Mm -hmm. And yet, (laughs) they still... And they would admit this. We are not putting them down, but it was just a reality that there was a hierarchy that some people tried to play. I saw it when people were arguing in, in <laughs> one corner. Just, you know, they were, they were trying to argue. How long somebody's been there. Yeah, and who has more of, of a right. What kind of cred, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that's an interesting thing. But also, again, still all, everybody was real lovable. You know, yeah, oh, <laughs> no, nobody was like lorded yeah, over absolutely. us. They, they were interested in getting new people in. And, and one last note about the porous boundary thing was that... They had a nonviolence, you know, principle. rule or principle, yeah. so to speak, uh, in the whole community. And part of that was that you cannot raise any animals for slaughter. And a lot of them have, you know, chose to be either vegetarian or vegan. But what what was interesting was that at the farmer's market, people could bring meat from outside and sell it at the farmer's market, as well as there were people that ate meat on the farm. Right. So that I think those kinds of little little things that they did yeah, allowing bits of mutual respect. Yeah, allowing something that wasn't part of how they were going to operate in general on the farm could still come into the farm and be a part of it. And it really helped me to kind of be inspired, I think, to rethink exactly my relationship with with animals. Mm. The yummy ones. Basically, I, I love catching the fish because uh, it's okay to eat fish because they don't have any feelings, according to Kurt Cobain of Nirvana. Mm-hmm. No, but uh, fish have feelings too. But but um, I, I do believe that you know it, it's nice to be able to have more sustainable foods mm-hmm. and local and, local and uh, to catch it fresh. These are all good things. But also fish and chickens. Uh, Augie, Augie slaughtered 12 chickens one day, and uh, we were okay with that. But I ain't going to... Do that to a lammy. So I figure if I'm not willing to do it myself, then, you know, I'm going to back off it with one exception. I was, I was kind of in the zone to say I'm going to not really be eating red meat. But he was telling us, this one farmer was telling us about his, his organic beef. And how it was, you know, cared for what he did, mm-hmm. the philosophy of his farm. And you're like, that. you can get behind that, yeah. right? So this guy, he is, he is serving up this meat that was amazingly tasty. It was healthier, and I felt good about it ethically, mm-hmm. you know, the way the animal is raised. I think no matter who you are, I think we should care about that just to be decent human beings. Right. Well, then there was a time when we were looking and we could have free camped, and one of the comments was your people thought it was a little rough because you're in between two slaughterhouses and that... Depressing. There's the smells and the noises and stuff, and so that, when we said, when we decided that we couldn't camp next you know in between them that we should think about our meat practices of what we're eating um, and how we're eating it and and how the animals are raised mm-hmm. if i mean if if you know if we didn't want to even be in between it right yeah. or be then what then, right do we have well, to eat it in such you know eat these things eat this food right. that was produced that way what's my problem what kind of hypocrisy is it that i can't deal with that we really found though that i think limit limiting the meat but getting closer to where you get your meat, which is really groovy. I really loved it. Now, also interesting thing about porous boundaries is that while they don't seem to have been really heavy into the spirituality of the Sufi tradition, that is Rumi, that is the mystical Muslim tradition, which is really interesting in the poetry of Rumi if you haven't checked it out, they were really interested in that and they were doing Sufi-style dance, uh, 
though it wasn't the the whirling dervish, if you know what that is. It, it reminded me of kind of a, a, a version of square dancing. In a yeah, way, you know? yeah. A little, you know, it, it was a little more spiritual than that, but not much, you know. It was... They had gotten that by going to some other place. So in other words, when you, when you are doing, when you have porous boundaries, one of the things that happens is not only do you get people that are visiting that are interesting, but you also go out and explore and then bring back treasures that you might think would be helpful. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing about the the this Sufi style, the Sufi dance. There was this moment. I had to actually sit out of it at one point because it was too overwhelming. Mm-hmm. But it was we would look at the person <laughs> and saying, "I'm open to all that I am. I'm open to all that you are." But you're looking them straight in the eyes, and there were all these people that had all these different backgrounds, and I was you're looking, looking eye to eye, and then and and everyone just like, and then you, know, you switch crying. a partner, and then you you know say that over mm-hmm. again to the next person, and yeah. It, it was, was pretty intense. It was very intense. More about that in a second. But the, the again, the point is that they've adapt, they've changed a little bit. The emphasis I kind of found talking to Douglas that the emphasis on the community of acts, for instance, is not as important anymore as some of the practices of dance in the community to bring it together and mm-hmm. celebrate. You know those hippie values. And, and what I really appreciate- we, we were actually—I want to say—we were actually in a circle within a circle. There was a hand-holding circle within a circle, singing about peace, love, and understanding in a circle with a bunch of old-school hippies in tie-dye. That actually happened on this trip, and it wasn't. <laughs> but also, it was intergenerational. You've got yeah. young people and older folks together doing this. <laughs> so, lesson number four. And we've mentioned this a little bit, but small businesses are encouraged for the good of all. So people doing things that are creative and independent is actually a really good thing. And they're not relying on everything. They're finding outside sources and things to help take care of themselves. Therefore, they can be more mobile. They, you know, they, they aren't. That's not the only world they know. It might be surprising to people how applicable this is to your own family or to even, say, a Christian church group or a nonprofit. Let me give you a couple examples. I know of a fellow whose dad wouldn't let him get a college degree. He wanted him to work for the family business and he wanted to keep him controlled by not having a degree. Right. I knew of a father who didn't let his son go out and start a different business because he wanted him to be part of the family business and therefore be controlled. I met a person whose spouse was part of a Christian nonprofit and the policy of the nonprofit was that that the spouse needed to be a supported staff member of this ministry. Both the couple did. So they so both you, got their income from one source. And you're talking mm-hmm. all three of these examples are outside of the farm, but right. just in your life experience, these are culty behaviors. You've come up with these these examples of how people get dependent on one source or one group for everything. There was a real crappy time in our lives when we had somebody who was our boss our pastor, and our landlord. All at once. All at once. And that was unhealthy for us. There was a time when... And for both of us. Yeah, right, right, right. We were both working the same place. So the idea is, this is kind of the tricky business of it. If you are, say, a Christian uh, ministry, and you have a couple there, and the husband, say, is working for you, and the wife, say, is a real estate agent. When the wife's hanging out with the other real estate agents, and they're talking about the stuff that has to go on for the husband's job, they might grumble. They might be naysayers, right? Mm -hmm. 
But if both the husband and wife are part of the same community and all of their friends are also in the same boat, it's really hard for anybody to question whether or not that's the healthiest lifestyle for them. In other words, they're more bought in or they're going to be more bought into the ministry because they don't have a lot of other options. And it it does sometimes serve to keep people in. If this is something true for your organization, I'm asking you to consider changing it. I know that I think even like the Presbyterians used to do it this way. If you're a missionary as a, as a dude, your wife has to be a missionary. I actually think this is a basic human right. And the hard part is, is if there is something, if if that organization fails or, or the, they can't continue and they have to close up shop, now both of you are looking for jobs, right? right. That makes it really not, hard. So in life in general, it's yes. kind of nice when you can diversify your income. Yes. So you're not just relying on one source, period. One minor note is that the other business about this is that at the farm, there's no slave labor involved. It's not one of right. those... You don't, you're not required to put right. in any certain hours into the farm as part of your living agreement. You that's, do have a, a monthly fee that you pay, but you're not you're not working for the farm. That's why it's not an intentional community. It is a. It, it, that's why it's not a commune. Now it's an intentional community. Lesson five. Cultural diversity depends on more than just the right attitude. It requires active cultivation. I'm not racist. Well, good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. But everybody that that you work with is white. Everybody that's on the staff is white. Well, only white people applied. Okay. Mm -hmm. What does that say about your welcomingness and so forth. Now, if some of you fine people are getting all worked up already because you're worried about, you know, affirmative action or quotas, I'm talking just get a, get around all that other stuff for colleges and workplaces. I'm just talking about your very life, your very community. You can't just be open-minded or not think you're a racist. You have to if you want diversity to be able to go out and cultivate it and create those bridges introduce people to something. As we already said, the, the commune was a bunch of affluent white people that dropped out of college, like my dad, to, to protest the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. So they had a very homogenous backstory. Mm-hmm. They all listened to Bob Dylan, I bet. You know what I'm and saying? So, and so that community would be attractive only to the folks that would right. like to be around that. Right. And so you don't realize, it's not that it's racist to listen to Bob Dylan, but if that is the only part of the cultural expression of what you're doing, that's going to be hard. They did recognize this. I didn't have to tell them. But again, the thing that's going to help any religious community be healthy, it's, listen, what we're saying is this isn't so that you look woke. <laughs> this is so that you will wake up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is a, an extraordinary spiritual value from diversity. I, I got so many I got so many close associates that, that just when they hear me say stuff like that they get so angry. But I'm saying that it's good for your soul. It's delighting to the eyes, to the ears, to the heart. I mean Well and not only that, but especially if you're living in a community, yeah. you do wanna shake up the gene pool a little bit. I mean it's yes, just a fact of nature you really that if it's do. Too, yeah, it's 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 unhealthy for your bodies. I don't have the research at my fingertips, but I do know that there are actual genetic diseases that are associated with various groups like Mennonites named Yoder. Hasidic Jews, there are, there are groups of people that because of their, their close-knit and relatively closed-off communities, they have developed 
actual physical diseases. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the more that we can, in a metaphorical way and in a literal way, open up to a breadth of experience and backgrounds, it's going to be a lot healthier for our communities. All right. Let's pause here, and we're going to play another song from the, the farm, the Tennessee <laughs> Farm Band, and we'll come back with the second of the last five lessons that we learned. With you. I could do that all day long. I just, again, if somebody has it on vinyl, maybe I'll go check it out on eBay after the show and we'll, we'll see if they have that on vinyl. <laughs> we didn't want to drive around because sometimes we buy vinyl records on the road oh, and, and then, then we just get warped. We We've get, learned that lesson too the hard hot way. when yep. we're. So, like, for instance, when we were in Tucson, there were a <laughs> bunch not, of cool records there. but It would not have lasted. No. We no. knew we couldn't keep them uh, safe for our whole journey. Anyway, we digress. Lesson number six some spiritual practices can be incredibly potent and therefore need to be handled with care because as we mentioned i think before there is some power to the the magic right there's some that that can be powerful you know and again we're using magic here in a (laughs) in a fun way on the last episode i think i distinguished mysticism and magic and i'd put most of the folks on the farm as more interested in a mysticism than a magic with a few exceptions but when when we return back to that idea of the of the dance it wasn't primarily about a specific religion or indoctrination. It was kind of like the Sufis in general, beyond beyond doctrine. Mm-hmm. And I should say that one of the things we were doing was, was kind of a tricky business. And that is, it's what anthropologists of religion call going native. Well, anthropologists in general. But if you want to study, let's say, some indigenous community in Papua New Guinea... It's very difficult to understand what's going on unless you participate. But sometimes there are things that you don't feel culturally comfortable participating in, or but you also don't want to be that observer that's just sitting there and critical and judging. So it was a it was kind of a fun and terrifying thing to to be able to say what what sorts of things do we want to participate in, what would be appropriate for us and what wouldn't. And there was, you know, and Alice had come from a Mennonite background mm-hmm. and was interested in... She was a friend of ours that... Yeah. She was there coming to experience a weekend like us and, and, and 
we she's so cool. Yeah, we we really enjoy getting to know her. <laughs> but what's but what's great about it is we we kind of made a pact that we would <laughs> we were going to explore and and check out pretty much everything that was on offer. In that, if there was a drum circle, we're going to go just check out the drum circle. Right. And the the thing though was we were saying to each other, hey, like let's make sure that we don't end up actually drinking the literal Kool-Aid, right? <laughs> and there was one moment when there was a toast with little Dixie cups. <laughs> we had like little shots of tequila and we're like, okay, well, we'll have a, we'll have a shot. We'll take we one. We looked at each other and we're like, well, here we go. <laughs> well, Alice, right after we took it, she's like, I said I wouldn't drink the Kool-Aid. Like, oh, like, Why well, <laughs> we're, we're still standing, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was like this moment where we all looked at each other and it was, it was like, this is too funny. Yeah, anyway, it was fantastic. And, and you know, it just... Reminds us again. Let's you know keep our you know our wits about us. Whatever. I mean, you know, wits about like, us with good humor. Yeah. You know, and there, and and that was fun. But the 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 part that that was fun about that is I was also interested that we had somebody with us and we had each other. If you're by yourself, here's the problem. Yoga works mm-hmm. at calming the mind, and the reason there were so many there were so many bad actors in yoga during the '60s and the '70s and even today is because it works, you can pretend that you own it, that you are the dispenser of this thing, right? Well, and I, I would say the same thing with, with you know, religion. With like, the Holy Spirit, with the mean, anointing, when you with talk the about Jesus. Some of those televangelists, the, the stuff they're selling, they, they tell you to give you all, their, all your money. A lot of these spiritual practices will affect our bodies. They'll... they'll change even our mindsets it, it's powerful stuff it, and it, it could be medicine it definitely and it if i want heal medicine, you yes. you know so if, let's say you you just get me to lay on my back for 15 minutes and tell you to breathe you, and take these deep breaths that you can, can call help it calm, yoga that can help help calm your central nervous system stacy will you then can start to relax stacy will tell me to turn my body in a certain way and i'm stretching now with a twist this isn't hindu this is you know, i'm just stretching you know stretching but as i'm stretching I'm thinking about things. I'm finding insights. I'm calming myself. So I'm like, I'm twisting and, and I have an insight and you're the person who got me there. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem is I can't get into a situation where you falsely tell me that you own the path to that insight. Yeah. To your healing. To or my healing. To your, yeah. Because as I've said before, you can't slap a logo on the Holy Spirit. You cannot trademark Jesus Church, you cannot own God. God is in the public domain. And and that is the problem for most actual cults and, and bad acting gurus and, and pastors is that they start to pretend like they're the only ones who can dispense the right. power of the of, of the universe. And I think it's important because you can I mean I, I see my job as a yoga instructor would be to give you the tools to then even at, to help yourself at times. It's not that I need to be the, the only one holding on to how you can do that, right? So mm-hmm. it's, it's teaching you the tools. Now, here's the thing. There is a kernel of absolutely total true reality at the heart of many worldviews, positions, spiritual practices, whatever. And there's overlap and, and so forth. What, what we're seeing is that folks who pray and meditate, Buddhist, Sufi, Catholic, whatever, they will experience certain insights about standing aside from their ego or 
most importantly, I think, living in the now, right? Be here now, that sort of thing. It's uh, sometimes associated with this concept of a perennial wisdom that isn't just the domain of one spirituality. It's, it's really just life. It's like there's a great deal of similarity between the teachings of the Apostle Paul, the Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca, Plato, and the Buddha, and Lao Tzu. There's, what they all have in common is this idea of, or in Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Don't worry about tomorrow. Be here in the present. Accept the reality that is and change the things that you can, the serenity prayer. All of this often just comes through and it's, contemplation. And it really is common sense, but something that we don't do often enough for ourselves. We're so caught up with what happened in the past or what's going to happen in the future, mm-hmm. right? That we miss the moments that we have right in front of us with our children, whatever. You know, we say that they grow up right before our eyes, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's that kind of thing that it, it 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 if you really stop and think about it 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 really is common sense. It's what we should be doing as we're experiencing life here right. now. Right. And so if somebody in another religious tradition says you should live in the moment and not worry, and it's Jesus or it's Buddha or it's Lao Tzu, you should just say yes to it. You shouldn't ask, is it <laughs> well, my racial heritage? Is it my religious heritage that said that? No. If it's true, it's true. Now sometimes the truth can be dangerous. Because then people will use it to manipulate you and to be abusive and to try to get stuff out of you, Mm -hmm. to to control you. Sometimes these insights will be dangerous to you because you could give away or give up on a lot of your old style of life. And sometimes it gets really, really dangerous when you actually get executed for it. So Mansur al-Halaj was a guy who lived from 858 to 922 And he got in a lot of trouble. He was a poet, a Persian mystic, and a Sufi who at some point cries out, I am truth. And they thought this was blasphemous, right? And I'm not sure what he actually meant. I do know that Rumi himself agreed at the end of his life that maybe what he was saying is exactly what needed to be understood, more in line with perhaps Rumi's friends who were Christians. And and Rumi had associates that were Christians, and they would discuss these ideas the early church taught this idea that the, that the community, what the Buddhists call the Sangha, what the Christians called the church, the ecclesia, the people called out from the rest of the world, that they were the body of Christ. So that, that, this, that Christ was literally embodied, well, was in some mystical way embodied now in the world through people that are little Christs, the mm. Christians that are, that are asking what would Jesus do and caring for their neighbors in the way of Jesus. Or this idea that the temple is no longer important, but that there is this idea of the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the temple of the Holy Spirit has this idea of, or brings with it this idea that that the presence of God, the Spirit of God is in people. And so in some sense, that's kind of like this yoga Hindu kind of idea of namaste. Like I'm recognizing this divine spark in me and in you. You can take this multiple ways. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit changes our heart. Yeah. So, but that idea of being the presence of God in a way sounds very Eastern, but also is very much part of the very explicit Christian teaching. My point being though, that because of this, when people encounter a spiritual potency of one sort or another, this can be like a drug, and it can be very addictive, and therefore people can control you if you can 
if they can get you to think that they're the only people that are, are going to tap you into that. Right. And I mean, that's, that's they the thing hold with the, the televangelists. Keys. They hold the keys to, mm-hmm. to that you secret go to the, medicine. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was re-watching that uh, Marjo. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he was just, he just, they said, look, everybody's <sighs> got, the, not a spiritual gift, but a gimmick, right? They're, mm. they're different sideshows, you know, in the, in the weird, well, weird so world. That's so sad. You know, oh, it was terribly sad. Ugh. Anyway, let's keep it going. All right. Lesson seven. It's important not to box people's lives in, in like in practical ways. I thought of this when, when there was a young woman named Channing, very cool kid. And she said, when they told everybody that there was going to be some kind of exercise in the morning, or maybe they were going to tour the eco farm at seven, she said, well, I'll, I'll be up at 930. So what starts after that? And I said, if I could get the kids at churches in America to do that, not apologize to not even ask the question, am I allowed to sleep in? Mm-hmm. She came to visit. She's going to go what she wants to go to. And that is a very strong quality. Right. I really, really like that. Now, maybe she just had a hard time getting up in the morning. And well, she- and she she talked about how, I, and I think they even maybe some stuff she had to do for her business or whatever, but she would have to stay up late, not go to bed too early. And so she needed to sleep in the morning. You know, it's not so. But that self-care and the ability for a 22-year-old woman to say you're not gonna, I, I'm not gonna just follow your schedule because of what you wrote it do down. Because you wrote it down, right. I need to do what's best for me and my body, and I know that I'm not any good to anybody or myself if I don't sleep until nine thirty. So while there might have been too much collective thinking in the early days of the farm, what I really liked was that didn't seem to be offensive to anybody. Right, people just did what they were gonna do. And what I was also interested in is there is no one gathering spot. Well, there's the community center and there's the farmer's market, but there's no one thing that everybody has to be at at the farm. You don't have to participate in one thing or the other, but there are are lots of things that you could participate in. That's why I wish churches, I kind of wish churches had like a little service at midnight on a Tuesday and seven in the morning on a Wednesday you know, and just even when we ate, things going on like a mall. Even when we were eating dinner, it felt, you know, even though it was prepared, sometimes it was potluck, but it felt like it always had that potluck style that dinner time was a suggestion and then you right. come and then you eat. Come on, and hanging then, out. And part of it was that, again, with that community time, where those were the times you had conversation. Yep. And so you could have as much or as little of that as you want and you're still going to get fed. And because I could see how some people, you know, it could be a little intense, and and you know, introverts might have a hard yeah. time sitting at a table talking for you know an hour or whatever. Yeah. You know, you just need to do if if you know <laughs> to get your quick bite to eat and then be there for the next session is all you had room for. That's you know that's that's what you need to know. Healthy boundaries yep. is really what that's all about. Yep. And friends, this is really one of the biggest points that we could possibly make to you. If you're trying to ask yourself what to educate young people towards and what to encourage in yourself is that ability to not apologize for just setting your own boundaries within religious context or just cultural context, but certainly religious context. That's kind of our focus. Number eight. Intergenerational opportunities are very helpful for a community. Yeah. Not just to strengthen the numbers or any of that it's just it's the same thing as diversity in a way that it's the same function right because there's old people have stupid ideas and young people have stupid ideas (laughs) young people have got some great ideas and old people have some great ideas so we come together and we have that mutual criticism and i and the farm learn yeah and i think that that's what i did appreciate that that it 
there was this thing that we can learn from the younger people and also the younger people can learn from the older people. And it wasn't as if there, there wasn't a hierarchy based on age. Right. And nor was there this fetish for youth that sometimes happens in America, that the only people that matter are the, right. are the hip There wasn't the a placating yeah. of that, yeah. And one, one of the things that we had noticed was that there were some kids that have lived on the farm and they would come back uh, sometimes to live and sometimes just to visit and sometimes maybe, you know, if they still lived outside of the farm but near the local community, so they would just come to hang out for either the farmer's market or, or the drum circle or whatever. But the fact that the kids would come back was a healthy sign. Voluntarily. Absolutely. And now, of course, the people that came back are the ones that came back. <laughs> so there might <laughs> yeah, be a whole so bunch of I'm sure there's some that... There's and, a documentary. There's documentaries where I think one of the girls a little hesitant, right. um, you know, at least initially. But there were tough times, there were lean times, and then there was a controlling atmosphere before. But as they've come back, sometimes people, people would say, hey, yeah, this is pretty good. I will say one thing. I did notice that people that had been on the farm for a long time... They at first seemed like, man, are they a little simple? No, they weren't simple. They just weren't as cynical. Right? Mm. I'd meet people and go, is that person not smart? Oh, no, they're totally smart. So what, what, am, what am I thinking? Oh, because very often we associate you know, the simpleton with being happy and smiling and, and being upbeat. There was just a great sincerity that was so strange because most of the time people aren't sincere. Yeah, right. People are embarrassed to be sincere. They've got to be a little bit ironic and so forth. So I would meet young people that were incredibly intelligent and interesting. And at first I wasn't sure how to peg them because they had grown up in a completely different environment from mine. When I see young people, say 19-year-olds, sometimes I'm worried they're going to either think I'm not cool or beat me up. <laughs> <clears throat> On the Why street. Would they pee you up? No, no, no. Sometimes, some, I'm oh. just saying that there's a there's kind of a scariness to a late adolescent. Gotcha. Sometimes, just sometimes, I'm like, they may are, not. Well, are they out of if, control? And if the prefrontal they, cortex yeah. isn't fully developed, they yeah. might not make always some of the best decisions, I, I, I especially might, if testosterone's involved. Yeah, and maybe some alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> depending on how old they are. And and you know, and they get to be uh, anyway. So they, they were just real sweet people, mm-hmm. and and that made me sad because it I, it made me realize that we had been traveling. Across the country, we met a lot of sweet people, but the idea that you could just rest with the fact that that would be the default was was interesting and, and foreign to me. Mm. My default isn't that I can trust people. And I'm not even saying that, that you could trust them. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe they're all just trying to eat us all, and I'm just a, <laughs> a, a pawn in their, their global well, scheme to we'll suck see people what, in. what the real thing is. You know, yeah, maybe. But, no, but no. so, you know, and, and, that's, and that's really important. Like, we're not, we're not, we've only spent a few days with them, yeah. so we don't know enough. We're just saying these are some obs- observations that if they just can a cultivate. Brief, a brief time there if and they can learning cult- from people while we were there. And if they can cultivate the good parts, they'll be healthier the more that they do that. And the more that they can reverse some of the negative parts, like a lack of diversity or whatever right those are those are important yeah, things. And, I, and they would be the, uh, the people we talked to th- they would admit that that was something that was was lacking that they would like they would like to change one of the reasons we thought hey maybe we should live on the the farm is you know the apocalypse if you're a prepper but you don't want to do a lot of the the comprehensive work you just want to take one piece of the prepping mm-hmm. go go find yourself a community and by the way the farm's not the only one right there are there's a lot of intentional there are christian intentional communities there i heard there's one agnostic in Georgia, one, there's a whole bunch around. No, the, but know. I mean oh, in Georgia. The, uh, the, Koinonia? The, yeah, the Christian one. Yeah, and so, I mean, I, you'll have to Google we have that, never, friends. We yeah, know. we haven't been to any other intentional Our friend Alice told us about it. Yes. And, and, and yeah. Alice, she was there. She uh, 
what her background, she had a Mennonite background, and she was interested in the midwifery stuff from Ida May. And, and, and really what's interesting is, I don't know if I mentioned it, but Ida May is more famous <laughs> than, than her Stephen husband, right, Gaskin, that, yeah. who was the founder. Of the whole thing. Because as, as, as we've been traveling around, a lot of people know her through her book, Spiritual Midwifery. So, mm-hmm. And there are quite a few things that were pioneered at the farm. Right. You, know, you mentioned the use of the soy for soy ice cream and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. There, anyway, there's numerous things. But in thinking through it at a, at a more macro level, I think you got kind of interested. You're not oh. sure you're going to do this in a, yeah. a life direction. Well, one of the things that uh, Doug had mentioned was... So, Doug, Doug was the guy that was was leading us through, you know, kind of showing us around. By the way, one of the things, because I want to get, one of the things that Alice also mentioned that was hilarious was we said, well, what are we going to do tomorrow? We said, well, whatever the, the Doug says, <laughs> is that what you're supposed <laughs> yeah. to do? And then we laughed again because it's like. <laughs> and, the only reason, and the only reason I want to laugh about that is because Doug is a, a, a really cool guy, sweet guy, and he he definitely did not come off as somebody that was desperately trying to be no, a cult leader. Like no. he was, he was hands off on a lot of things. You, you can laid tell back. he had a love and passion for the farm, and he yeah. wanted to share that with folks. But he and, wasn't trying to be a leader or no. like kind of heavy hand. He was just a laid back guy. Anyway, I'm sorry. So, but yeah, so he, but he whatever, was telling you. So Douglas, which you know how we close out the show. We are all individuals. We must think for ourselves. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that whole thing. Anyway, so yeah, we were going to do whatever Doug said, but. Uh, so one of the things Doug had mentioned is there's a need for end-of-life midwives is what he was saying, but it was a kind of a, a end-of-life doula, yeah. right? Somebody that would help these folks that is – because there's quite a few of uh, the you know, population that is, what, seven – I think, you know, like maybe a third of it that might be 70 years and older. And, you know, as, as they – society in general as the baby boomers yeah, age. Absolutely. And so there might be – you know, the, there's that need of helping people – Die. Except the death, yeah, yeah, and and, and, and see it move on to that transition in a healthy way, and 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 embrace it rather than uh, look at it as you know a horrible ending. It's it's a, it's a lady that we're staying with here, um, where we're recording this podcast. She had realized that yeah, there are a lot of similarities that she could you know she sees with the pro- the birthing process to the dying process. Right. And we, and I, I could really use that like that to know that there would be somebody guiding me through that, mm-hmm. not just taking my pulse and sticking me with needles. Yeah. You know, I think is, I think that's a really, I really hope that you consider that. Baby, yeah. Well, I, one I, of I, the I, things that Alice had mentioned was when it, with her experience, cause she, she does, she works at a hospital right now, but she's also been a midwife and, and, you know, as well. She had mentioned that a lot of the whole thing is it's about control when you're when you're birthing and 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 that you are you aren't in control at that moment you know and and the more that you're trying to hold on or be in control the harder that whole process is and that's very similar with death you know the mm-hmm. more that you're you know gripping on to this existence in mm-hmm. here and not just embracing the next thing mm-hmm. is is what makes it even harder and, and more of a struggle. You this know. doesn't mean you have to run to death or think <laughs> no. that death isn't sad or stop or not grieve and 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 deny that. It's more to say that not fighting the grief, mm-hmm. but crying when it's time to cry and laughing when it's time to laugh. I mean, this my I would say if I could get out of the theological world, my biggest criticism of a lot of American pastors is a is a strange one, and it's 
I think too many of them, too many pastors go around with a false grin. Mm. There's that guy. Mm-hmm. And then there's too many pastors that are unnecessarily scowling. Mm. The, the grinners are those who are trying to do the church growth thing and, and be upbeat and do the positive Mm-hmm. thinking mm-hmm. side of things. And then the, the scowlers are trying to show how good they serious. are. And well, they're, and they're very doctrinal and they're very orthodox. Mm-hmm. And no, when something is... When somebody's real. Yeah, it that's just, what you're looking for. It, laugh that's when it's reassuring. Time to laugh. That's reassuring. That's, that sh- being an example of just embracing and living life and, and being real and know that life can be messy sometimes and, and being okay with that, you know? And, right. and then knowing that there is a time to you know, laugh or whatever. You don't want to be so serious that, you know, you take life too seriously. Yeah. But you also don't want to not take it seriously when it's serious, you know? And right. so anyway, that's a kind of a side issue, but I don't think it is so far off because what we need in the world are more people who can guide us through these major and universal moments in life that seem to not be given enough attention, you know? Certainly death. You know, you got the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross revival of folks being interested in the process of death and dying Mm -hmm. in the last few decades, but it's not still understood enough how to help people through that process. And there's a lot of people that they, you know, it it is really difficult for them emotionally to be there with somebody Mm -hmm. during that process. One other business about life and death and the intergenerational aspect of the, the farm is that they... Surprisingly, I think, because of what we think about political progressives, most of them were political progressives, have a history of being Mm pro-life in the way that I think that term would best be used. That is that that's what they're about. They're not anti-abortion. Like that didn't come across. It was that they embraced life, whether it was animal the aged or the children, you know, and that was important. And they recognize that when... When you are pro-life, there is a commitment to the care of each of the 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 beings, the people that are involved. Right. Like they, that's what made it so hard for them to just let anybody in, right? Because it wasn't it they it wasn't about just letting them have the baby and then send them off into the you know the world again type of thing. Right. It was this idea that life was a gift and that we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Now, so the the takeaway from that is, it didn't come across to even progressive 20-year-olds who were visiting or 22-year-olds who were visiting, that they were uptight in that regard, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of young progressive kids are going to say, well, no, I'm very much pro-choice. And what was the difference? That the history of this thing was that it actually did cultivate life. It did cultivate generosity and hospitality. Now, did it work? That was that other part we talked about. It was very difficult. Maybe on a different scale it could work. But the main thing is that if you're going to be pro-life, then you should mean it and you should actually put your money where your mouth is. Mm-hmm. Or in this case, your actions, your lifestyle, that sort of thing. Anyway, it was an interesting theme. So lesson number nine. So leaders must be equal with the rest of the group for the culture to, to be healthy. To clarify this, it's best to think about someone we know, an Eastern Orthodox abbot and monk named Trifon. Father Trifon, in the wake of the Roman Catholic sex scandals said that this is why he's anti-clerical. Hmm. And I thought, well, what, what, what on earth? He's a, he's a churchman. This is, an or- well, this is a guy <laughs> he's who's part of a religious order. Mm-hmm. So how could this guy be anti-clerical? And what he means is the idea that you could deify the clergy. Mm. 
Now, but that's funny because, of course, in the Eastern Orthodox, in the Eastern Orthodox theology, they talk about theosis or deification, where we merge with God. But what we're saying is, just like you don't want to say all cops are by definition good, all pastors are not by definition good. There are good and bad cops, good or bad pastors, good or bad priests. But to give unconditional loyalty and allegiance to a church person because they're a church leader is the problem. And when he, as a person who's not just involved in the church, but is someone who gave his whole life to it, when he's able to say that, I think that helped me to understand why it was that you could have, have somebody, you could have somebody who's a teacher, you could have somebody who's a leader, and who's incredibly important to a movement, but isn't at, an, at a metaphysical level or, or at some basic level, isn't bigger or better or more important than everybody else. So I guess the point is you can have total respect for the sages in your community without deifying them or without giving unquestioning loyalty to them. And that's something that happened. I mean, that's really the, to me, that's the big takeaway. There's all sorts of things that went on with the history of the farm, but being able to course correct at a moment when you realized that things just weren't working out as you had hoped, but you didn't want to give up on the project altogether, but you wanted to make the right course corrections I think that's really important. Right. Well, and I think in, in any any leader, so any pastor that is a part of a church or congregation, that pastor, I mean, if they can recognize when when they're no longer the healthiest person to be leading the congregation, that's that's a very, very healthy thing for both the pastor themselves and the congregation in general. And it's really helpful when people realize that no one person or a small group of people should have unquestioning leadership over the whole hearts and minds and physical bodies of a community. Right. It's just not okay. And understanding that, and and that's to me the funniest thing about the joke, I kind of felt safe after the after the lady said, hey, you know, we used to be in a, we used to be a cult. <laughs> I kind of like that because it's like lightning doesn't strike qu- tr- <laughs> lightning doesn't strike twice. So the places that you should really worry about, this is I think one of the takeaways, the places that I really should worry about are the places that don't look like cults on the outside, but ultimately turn out to be a little culty. And act like it, right. So, And also just the fact that she was, they were self-aware enough yes. to recognize what they were yeah. so that they know what it looks like when it is that and saying that that's not how they operate now. That was the healthiest helpful. thing about folks we met at the farm is that not only that part, but anything else, the diversity issues, the the difficulties of intergenerational handoff and leadership, the fact that the hard part about being in a community is that you're in a very small town, and that means all of those things that you associate with the negatives of a small town, those negative bickering relationships Mm. and and that sort of thing that takes us to number 10. Yeah, so small town bickering is an inherent problem in any community. Right. And so we see it in our in our churches. We see it in our neighborhoods. If you know your neighbors, I mean, I think Irvine, where we live, they do an intentional, like, they, they, they don't give you the front yards. They don't want you hanging out in front knowing your neighbors, or at least that was some of the purposefulness of certain areas in Irvine when it was being created, which to me, I think is, is sad. But the fact of the matter is, when you are operating within a community, there is going to be some disagreements. And then how you handle it as a group, is it going to be healthy or unhealthy, is extremely important. Yeah. Now, to give you just, you know, I'm a professor. So let me just throw one thing on the the tail end of all this. 
is that all of these 10 lessons fit in with one other big question, which is how is it that any group changes? There is a lot of discussion in the scholarly world of the sociological study of religion about the idea of a move from a sect to a denomination, that process. And one of the things that sects typically are associated with is people who are on the outs of society. They are people that are not holding the reins of the culture, and they are people that maybe are on the margins of society in general. And that when you move to a so-called denomination, then you are getting into a spot where you are now working kind of as part of the landscape. An example might be Mormonism. At first, you know, Mormons are getting tarred and feathered and they're running them out of Midwestern towns. Mm-hmm. And Joseph Smith is talking about becoming president of a new kingdom or, or of the United States or, or something, right? And so those are the things that you don't normally associate it, you know, associate with LDS people today. And you shouldn't because there's been a lot of, a lot of mellowing that happens, a kind of decanting mm-hmm. of religious fervor. And this has basically happened to everybody. In many ways, one of the reasons I was interested in checking out the farm is it reminds me of the Christian church itself that starts out essentially as a bunch of people that are anarchists. They're the outcasts of society. And I mean anarchist in the sense that they do not lord it over each other. That was an important piece. They shared their, their wealth in mm. common. And eventually, they became the system. Mm. And now there's these hippies that became the system. And I asked a couple of the older gentlemen really a question, why did my dad stop being a hippie? Mm. I was kind of trying to figure that out. My dad was a hippie. And then he went to Orange County, California. Yeah. And he wanted, you know, he wanted to live in a guard-gated home in an affluent neighborhood. Why would he do that? Why would a hippie ever do that? And I think part of it was fear. Mm-hmm. Not just for my dad, but for, for all the people involved, that the idea is really great. But when the big bad monster of Molech shows up, you, you want to be on a team that's able to withstand, or at least you think it can withstand, the onslaughts of the system itself. Mm-hmm. And that was the part that did make me the saddest, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I realized that it might in many ways be inevitable culturally, but it's a it's a real frustration that I have. And I'm not done with that question. The rest of this podcast, I'll keep coming back to this question. Not this particular, we're almost done, friends. We're talking about (laughs) different episodes. I think it's a big theme for me because usually religion is so gross because the spiritual experience that was at its foundation was so powerful. Mm. That there was something so momentous that people commemorated it with an altar and Mm. then people became slaves to the altar. Mm -hmm. There was a moment when people were so overjoyed that they feasted and they stopped working and then not working on the feast day became an oppressive law Mm -hmm. where I can't buy a car or Mm -hmm. go get a beer. Mm -hmm. And this is how religion works. It takes the most beautiful things that people have experienced in the world. I am truth Mm -hmm. and turns it into the truth is going to be whacking you on the head once a week or else, you know? Well, and, and so Moses comes down from the mountain and the people are worshiping a golden calf. Yes. He though brings the 10 commandments, which talks about not worshiping, other gods and all this, then we've seen them. People are treating the 10 commandments as if it was God. And they are in a sense, worshiping the 10 commandments. Yes. Now. All throughout. And like, yeah, why America. is it that we keep doing yeah. this? Like over never and over th- again. I never had thought of it that way, that people are putting these idols on their lawns throughout American towns right. that we're seeing when we're going to small towns, 
we see the Ten Commandments they're turning the on rules. the lawn. These these rules or these this, these commandments into their new God, their new their little their little golden calf. Yeah. Anyway, this is how religion works, baby. Hey, that's why that's why I'm into this thing. It's a it's a fun thing to study, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, because the history of it it all fits in. But now here's the deal: if you want more on that, if you're more scholarly on this one, what you want to know is that there are a few older early 20th century studies of this that are really the the kind of standard well they kind of set the narrative about this idea of moving from a sect to denomination you've got richard niebuhr in a book called the social sources of denominationalism that's from 1929 i can't go back into all of the different bibliographic bits but you might want to look at et clark the small sects in america sects s-e-c-t-s in america 1937 and then the one that's I think really interesting is Liston Pope, P-O-P-E, Millhands and Preachers. That's from 1942. Now, it's, it's Pope especially that I'm thinking of. But, but here's the deal. When you have a sect, you have a movement that is voluntary. People show up and they're excited about this. There's a bunch of young people that are going to change the world and they're going to do it together. And their best friends are other compatriots that are going and they're going to be called out, ecclesia, out of the world. And they're going to have this idealistic world. And the only people in it are true believers. And at some point, when you move from a sect to a denomination, then people are now folks that have real jobs, They've been in it for a few generations. You have, for instance, membership by birth. I was born Jewish. I was born Catholic, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Or uh, also you would say that there is an emphasis on the administration itself, almost if it's like a, a means of grace or the way to get that thing. Hmm. So they start out dancing in the forest and beating drums, mm-hmm. and now they have to ask, who is the second-in-command that can authorize membership into this movement? That sort of thing, more of an administrative nature. And then another bit of it is that there becomes more of an, inclusive, uh, an inclusiveness to the state. So these groups might start out as anarchist almost closed off to the system, and then eventually they develop a relatively comfortable relationship with the dominant class and the state itself. Mm. They're no longer like the Amish, right? Like the Amish are, are unique because they have kind of stayed in their own little world. But for the most part, other groups eventually get absorbed into the larger society. There's a tendency to attempt conversion of all members of society instead of just finding a small group of true believers. So if you could have everybody be Catholic or everybody be Episcopalian or everybody be Methodist, that's just fine because it's not this exclusive club of true believers when you move to a denomination. And finally, there's this tendency um, to compromise with the ethics of a secular world outside. That is, the secular world that we might call Molech is something that eventually has to be compromised with. And that's the part, it's again... It's a powerful force, and in order yeah. to survive, sometimes you do have... you got to have marketing. You've got you got to have an ad consultant. I mean, the, the fact Holy of the Spirit matter is, needs to be marketed. We have to make money in yep. order to buy food, in order, you know, to live somewhere. There's right. some, you know, you have... You can't be so completely outside the system that that the system doesn't exist in a certain sense in your reality. Which brings me to a really weird and awkward thing because we would like to keep this podcast going for a long, long time. We have so much fun getting to know people through the back channels of emails and other social media. And we're loving that people are, are digging what we're doing and that it's helpful. 
one of the ways we want to support it is through ads. Here's one right now. Hey, friends. When we find things that we really dig, we definitely want to share them with you. And Boondockers Welcome is one of the coolest things that we've discovered while we've been on the road. All you have to do is pay a small annual fee, and then you get access to staying with folks all across the U.S., and we have just been completely blown away by the instant community we found. And we've made lifetime friends that have gone above and beyond with their kindness and their generosity. If you go to our website, protectyournoggin.org, you'll find a link there where you can sign up. And we think you'll enjoy it. And you can help support the podcast at the same time. All you need is an RV or a camper with a toilet and cooking facilities. And then you can stay for free all around the country. Give it a try. I don't think you'll be disappointed. And we hope you enjoy it as much as we do. Now, here's the thing, Stacey, about that one. <laughs> we like, we like we, what we promote so far. I mean, the, really, it kind of dawned on us, like, we would be promoting this stuff anyway. But if there's a little tiny bit that there's a way in which if we give you a link to click through that you can enjoy what we have found extremely helpful and a little little bonus goes our direction it's hard because we don't know how to make money it without will, doing it unethically and right. so we're always reluctant it, to do it but i, I feel good we, about this we one. have bills to pay yeah. <laughs> you know we've got children that we're still yeah. you know taking care of and 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 folks that aren't our actual children that we're still trying right. to help and take care of. So, you yeah. know, we, we, we definitely appreciate any support. You can also tip us in various ways by going to the website. But as we get here to the end, uh, and and did you get to 10? Uh, we did get to 10. Um, oh, yeah. But we uh, didn't explain any of their okay. their pieces. So the, the so we, we didn't we didn't quite follow up with everything on number 10. So let's just say that part of it, we, we did mention that there was bickering, that they admitted that, that w- there was bicker- bickering. Right. And then their, their problems, what they often found were things over dogs and pets and stuff, you know, that were a nuisance to maybe neighbors and things. And right. So there's stuff Just like the that. Just the day in and day out stuff. But and, that made us worry that that might be the thing that would make us not want to be a part of it. Because as much as the Sangha, the community, the ecclesia, the church, as much as community itself can be very, very powerful and helpful... It also can be very exhausting. Mm-hmm. Take your energy mm-hmm. out. And and another thing that they're having, um, a, you know, kind of there's a little bit of a disagreement of they recognize that they do need to have a, some younger folks coming in to help, you know, take over some of the leadership. But yet some think that there's too much too fast coming in or not 100 percent, you know, OK with some of the methods that are the poorest boundaries, such as Airbnb and right. the, the eco village and right. things, you know, right. so there's, there's there's conflict. There's conflict because people don't always agree. You know, how do you best accomplish some of these things? And for Stacy and I, one it of our hard. Yeah, it changes very hard. But I think but Stacy and I then realize that one of the reasons we're interested in this very conversation about how to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery, mm-hmm. spiritual manipulation, religious authoritarianism and all this, and help others do the same, that you still need community, but community is dangerous mm-hmm. as, much as, it is, as much as it is helpful. Mm-hmm. And for us, like where we are, we've had community for a long, long time, and we're in a time of transition. And just at least at this point in my life, the one thing that would hold me back, well, there's several. You know, I mean, there's just life things. <laughs> there's a lot. I want to be near the kids in California, mm. whatever. We've got our own property. But the main thing is 
one of the things that would hold me back from being a part of any intentional community is just that I don't want to get so sucked in that I'm emotionally dragged down by this other stuff. I've got enough. I got eight brothers and I got seven <laughs> brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got nephews and nieces. Mm-hmm. I got nephew. So we got all this family. We don't need more stress. Yeah, that, we don't need another a, that Thanksgiving. That is a huge extended family. So right. To speak, but yeah. Right. Now, some people don't have family, so then they really need that. We kind of have been liking this idea that we are driving around the country and we're meeting people and having very good conversations, very close and warm and affectionate relationships Absolutely. with people. And, uh, you know, just last night we were at, uh, at the beach with a couple we met just a couple of days ago. It felt like we were just hanging out. Yeah, that we've been like life, lifelong friends. Right. It's been amazing. They've invited us over for dinner. Did it go over there in a half hour? Helped, you know, we've held their, their three-month-old grandson. Yeah, it's, it's just been... like we're family. But what's nice is that they're not going to complain if I don't come to badminton time next Thursday because <laughs> we're going to be out of town. Or Thanksgiving in a couple weeks. So maybe, you know, <laughs> we like the nomadic life. One of the things we like is having friends around the country but not having to to be so tied up with all of the problems in a small clique or something because it's just it's hard for me in particular. I don't like the negative feelings. <laughs> That's my problem. That's one of my problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody doesn't like negative feelings. I, in particular, am, am very susceptible to absorbing, like, kind of like a mushroom when you saute it. It, it picks up the flavor of where it's at. <laughs> of all the other stuff. So if yeah. everybody else is, is filled with anxiety, mm-hmm. I will pick up that anxiety very mm-hmm. easily. Anyway. One last thing I want to mention here, though, is we're extremely grateful for the generosity and kindness that we saw in, in, in the people of the farm. Uh-huh. They welcomed us with open arms. They knew that we did a podcast, so they weren't hesitant to answer questions or let us kind of they invited us in and and i will say that whatever yeah whatever the the, with the community that they're they are building i i joked around with jeff because we did we hitchhiked while we we parked our camper and we weren't moving it because you know so as we go to one part of the farm or the next we would accept rides from people and i said this is the only place in america that i could imagine right now feeling comfortable enough to hitchhike. And we hitchhiked everywhere and, and it was great. And and so I, I really appreciate that they you know gave opened showed us a little window into their lifestyle and their community and were so accepting. And I really hope folks that as people come and, and visit you and your communities and at your churches and or stuff, your living room you or know, your condo exactly. or your dorm or your prison cell. Yes. You know? I mean having that hospitality for people around you can be so liberating and healing in just a profound way with a little little mo- little motion and just even a if little it's smile just for a moment you know yeah. just for us to find that you know sense of 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 peace and community on the road when we've been so solitary yeah. and nomadic you don't have to wear tie dye <laughs> you don't have to bang a, a djembe over around a fire you don't have to hold hands and sing old hippie songs and dance but Maybe you shouldn't give up on the idea that there might be people that are going to be welcoming to you and that are going to extend to you that kind of peace. Maybe it'll be more in line with your ideology, politics, and religion. And that you can do that for another and that together all of us can find peace upon peace. Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. 
And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? That's because you found this letter low too much.